Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and sports nutrition professor of about 20 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, it's Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I created the Flex Diet Certification, faculty member at the Kerrig Institute, a whole bunch of other stuff. And uh, yeah, I'll actually be teaching for the Kerrig Institute over in Sweden uh, next weekend. So I won't be on Iron Radio here, but that'll be fun. That will be fun. Yeah, going to do a little stop in Iceland for 24 hours, I'll be in Copenhagen for two days, and then uh, kind of almost right across the border there teaching for three days in a row. That's exciting. Yeah, it'll be fun. Uh, who are you teaching? What kind of students? Yeah, so it's pretty cool. It's uh, Most of these will be probably functional neurologists and probably a lot of high-level trainers. So I'm doing the neuronutrition recovery and kind of some heart rate variability stuff there and it'll be fun we get to do a cool experiment where we bought a whole bunch of the expensive ketone esters some ketone salts and so each day they get to do a repeated uh 2000 uh row and then we'll do it fasted one day uh high carbs one day and then ketogenic the other day using uh ketone ester using the hvmn ester Huh. Yeah. yeah, so we'll be collecting uh, cognitive stuff, uh, some heart rate stuff, performance, RPE. And we did it uh, last time in Florida in March, and it was interesting. Obviously, it's an informal you know, thing. People are just volunteering their data, but the results were kind of like all across the board. Like it wasn't as consistent as I thought it would be. Um, and there's a little bit of a trend for the ketone ester to show not better performance on the 2,000-meter row all out, uh, but RPE was a lower, and cognitive was a little bit better afterwards. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, so it'll be interesting to, to see what we find. Maybe if we can get enough data set together, maybe it'll, it'll show something. Right on. Yeah, yeah. We, we need data on this. I'm writing a book chapter right now, and that's the ultimate conclusion I have to come up with is we just need a lot more data on this really novel state, uh, you know, when the Normally, you're you're so low blood sugar, low insulin when these sorts of yeah. things happen, and this is like evolution hasn't taught your body how to like select. I found some actually very cool uh, papers about the sort of the KM and the the pace at which or the affinity at which glucose versus ketone bodies can enter different tissues and that sort of thing, and. It, it's just not the kind of thing that it comes into direct competition with each other normally, right? You're not carb replete and in ketosis. <laughs> and it's just, it's just weird stuff. Yeah, and that's, you know, I've talked to Dom D'Agostino a lot about this. I was on a panel at ISSN many years ago about it too. And you know, there's only a couple of papers, right? So the, the Cox paper, which used HVMN ester, used high carbohydrates and uh, ketones, pretty high-level athletes, you know, showed a, I remember like a two to three percent increase, which, you know, in elite level athletes, that's that's pretty massive, you know, for a supplement. 
Um, and Louise Burke tried to replicate that study a little bit. They used a little bit of a different ester, but they had a high amount of you know gastric upset in that study. So I don't really know if we could use those results at face value as much as I would like to. Um, but you know, combining them in you know higher level athletes, I think those are the only two main studies. There's a couple other supporting studies, but yeah, you're right. It's like there isn't any really evolutionary lens to look at when both ketones and carbohydrates are high at the same time. Yeah, so it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Honestly, I mean, when people talk about fat loading or, or ketotic diets and all this sort of thing, you have to at least bring some early mention of this into the textbooks and the literature. Otherwise, people don't know what they're getting into. You know, they might think, oh, well, ketosis is good because of X, Y, Z. It's like, well, that's that's more of a, a metabolic ketosis because you're not eating any carbohydrates. And it's, right. just a, it's a, such a weird new thing. I'm excited to see where this pans out. It may be, I mean, science doesn't care what we want. You know, it may be that glucose and ketones, they... Maybe the glucose outcompetes the ketones, you know, or maybe it's a 50-50 thing or and it just doesn't work the way it works with metabolic ketosis. But regardless of what happens, I think it'll be neat to see. So, Yeah, my, my gut feeling so far is that ketones still won't be able to compete with carbs for speed and power. Right. Yeah. Uh, do they change PDH enzyme? Not sure. But I think ketones may be useful if the intensity is not quite as high. And there's a very high cognitive demand, especially as fatigue increases. Uh, Brandon Egan and Dom D'Agostino have done you know, some work on that. And to me, if I were to guess and throw a dart at a board, that's, that's what I would be like, super interested in. Because you know, in team sports and other you know, sports where you have a lot of thought going on, too, you know, that may be you know, very useful, even though it's not a direct increase in speed and power per se but for you know more fuzzier performances you know soccer you know football things like that it may be a turn out to maybe be a big performance increase yeah like an additional fuel yeah right yeah uh okay nerdy not already right (laughs) not here i know it right (laughs) well everybody actually that's what the topic today is going to be muscle nerds Uh, we're going to just define them i mean i think they've become sort of a, a fairly well if not big uh, a significant percentage of all lifters, and we're going to define, you know, what n- muscle nerds are, what percent of all lifters are like this, what motivates them. There's a bunch of fun stuff we can discuss. Uh, and maybe you can ask yourself as a listener, do I fall into this category, right? So uh, a couple of pieces of news, though, uh, first. These are all uh, science news. Strength and muscle sport news. Uh, the first one addressed something, Mike, that you and I have uh, talked about at conferences. You know how like we, we walk up to a poster and they're saying something kind of damning about red meat. And you know, I'd love yeah. to say, describe red meat. You know, and, and then that usually they end up backpedaling, right? Because they conflate bologna with grass-fed round steak, you know, yeah. and that kind of thing. Um, but... Not all researchers do that, of course. And this paper actually talks about the descriptors. So uh, it's it, the title here is Dietary Meat Categories and Descriptions in Chronic Disease Research are Substantively Different uh, Between Experimental Models and Observational Studies. In other words, when we go do a direct control group comparison, w- the way we're describing meats 
isn't what the epidemiological studies are doing. So are is this apples and oranges, right? I mean, maybe that's a bad metaphor. Uh, fruits. It says uh, this analysis describes patterns in dietary meat, uh, and then they kind of spell that out. Skeletal muscle and associated tissues, right? Either mammalian, avian, or aquatic. And those mm-hmm. are collectively referred to as muscle foods. And Mike, you and I, like at IFT, I remember they really like yeah. that term, right? Muscle foods. Uh, yeah. And you, you kind of got to be careful because we might go into a session called muscle foods thinking, oh, nutrients <laughs> for muscle building, you know, uh, thinking about human muscle. But um, a total of 1,020 categories, 1,020 <laughs> categories, and 776 descriptors of those categories were identified from 369 articles. So they go on to, um, I'm not going to get into the weeds too much here, but for example, processed meat, where a researcher might use a species, right? Chicken, uh, something like that. They might um, say uh, something about storage, like fresh or dried, or preparation methods, like poached, right? Other descriptors could be, descriptors and or categories here i'm kind of mixing this all together but lean right versus fatty or very specific like luncheon meat so they go on to say that researchers describe processed meat red meat and total meat categories more commonly than they described poultry or fish so i think maybe researchers do feel more compelled to say what am i talking about with the red meat um and they don't do that as much with with poultry and fish, you know, um, turkey, chicken. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I imagine like the difference between white fish and salmon, you know, it's night and day. And yeah. so we can't, we can't just say fish. Um, in conclusion, muscle food categories and descriptions are substantially different between experimental studies and observational studies. So I think we need to get our act together. This is the first time I've actually been able to point to a paper and say, look at that. Like, you know, <laughs> there are so many ways to do this with descriptors, preparation, storage, species that we can't paint with a broad brush. I, I wouldn't think uh, too much. So Yeah, oh, that's interesting. That sort of bleeds into uh, our next one. Uh, we also have to be careful with how we describe uh, fruits. So... You know what? I was remiss. That last paper was from O'Connor and colleagues. Advances in nutrition just came out. This next one is about dried fruit from Mosine, M-O-S-S-I-N-E, and colleagues. Also advances in nutrition, brand new. Dried fruit intake in cancer, a systematic review of observational studies. Now, they point out the same issues almost that the other researchers did with meats. They say uh, dried fruits are generally perceived by both consumers and researchers as less attractive. And unfortunately in research, oftentimes they, again, they conflate fresh fruit with dried fruit. But this paper is pointing out that dried fruits could be quite different. It says chemical compositions of raw and dried fruits may differ substantially. Several clinical and lab intervention studies have reported the protective effects of dehydrated fruits against the progression of some cancers. And this is what kind of caught my eye. It says, cohort studies determine that significant reductions, and again, this is specifically to dried fruit, 
reduce the relative risk of precancerous colorectal polyps. So if people aren't familiar, a lot of people as they age will develop one or more polyps in their intestines, right, in their large intestines, and those tend to become cancerous. If you can remove them when they're just a benign polyp, you're out of the woods. But if you just let them sit there for years, 10 years, you could end up with colon cancer, and that's one of the major cancers. So anyway, re- reduced risk of precancerous polyps, uh, reduce the incidence of prostate cancer, and reduce the mortality from pancreatic cancer. Now you might say, okay, but how much? Well, it reduced the polyps in your intestines by 24%, the risk. It reduced prostate cancer risk by 49%. And it reduced the pancreatic cancer that was, uh, you know, mortality risk associated by 65%. And that's if people ate three to five uh, or more servings of dried fruits per week. So that's just per week. Uh, And then it just goes on to say only a very limited number of health outcome and dried fruit uh, studies have really been done. Evaluations have been done. Uh, And if you dig into the paper a little bit, it just talks about, what makes some people shy away is that they're concentrated, right? They have higher sugar content, right? Because they're dehydrated. But our population loves that stuff, right? More nutrients concentrated, more carbs in there, um, just more calories in general in something like a raisin than a grape, right? That sort of idea. So, um, so is the theory there you're just getting a more concentrated form, which is why it's more beneficial than I would assume? Uh, that's one of the things. The <laughs> other is just the chemical composition. Uh, the uh, yeah, the vitamins, change. I guess, can differ. Uh, well, you know, like Mike, you and I have talked about stuff like freeze carbohydrates of different kinds, and it changes their glycemic yeah. index, <laughs> resistant starch, and all that. It, it may have something to do with that. Uh, maybe the phytochemicals are concentrated, you know? Yeah. Uh, so they might be slightly different too. Do the heat process may change them? I suppose. Right, right on. I mean that that's reminiscent of coffee. You know, cold yeah, brew exactly. coffee versus hot brew, and totally. Yep. So, I I just think this is a great opportunity for our listeners to think about dried fruits. Uh, and l- let me go to one more paper and explain something about uh, dried fruits. This is a slightly older paper from the Nutrition Journal 2016 from Karugi, uh, C-A-R-U-G-H-I and colleagues, pairing nuts and dried fruits for cardiometabolic health. Uh, And again, I would think that a lot of lifters, like that's one of my favorite gym bag snacks, right, or car snacks is dried fruits and nuts. They're very calorie dense. They're nutrient rich. Um, But this is certain dietary patterns with fruits and nuts involved, reduce different metabolic diseases. Um, Estimated fruit consumption historically in the U.S. has been low. Um, This is almost shocking. Dried fruit intake is even lower than regular fruit with only 6.9% of the adult population reporting any consumption. Wow. So less than 7%. Abysmal. Yeah, abysmal. Especially when you think... (laughs) When you think about what I just read about the reduced, you know, cancer risk and all those concentrated nutrients, um, even fewer Americans consume tree nuts uh, or tree nut butters. So it says an estimated 5.5 to 8.4 percent of U.S. adults consume tree nuts or and or their butters. So this is very interesting stuff to me. I've got to think, and maybe you know, listeners. Uh, email us and and let us know if you do this or not. I my bias is that we will be eating more of these things 
I mean, I eat handfuls of like um, f- dried fruit and nut granola and things like that, you know. Um, it says, just in conclusion, evidence suggests increasing consumption of both tree nuts and dried fruits could help improve Americans' nutritional status and reduce chronic disease. So I, it's one of those opportunities, I think, that you can get something that's really high in calories and also incredibly good for you, you know. So often we say high calories and we think like French fries, and that's not what we're talking here. You can get a, a lot of health benefits, reduce your cancer risk, improve pre-diabetic kinds of m- metabolism and, and all that kind of stuff just by choosing your, your high-calorie foods more wisely, I guess. Yeah, nutritious and delicious. Right on. So uh, it's just kind of cool. So as a summary there, right, it's the kind of meat, and there's so many ways to describe it. It's the kind of fruit, so many ways to describe that. And we often don't do that. We just talk about fruit intake or even worse, like fruit and vegetable intake. Well, my God, <laughs> how many different thousands of kinds of fruits and vegetables are there? What, which ones are you talking about? And that's, you know, the kind of nutrition advice we often get is so vague. So, okay, that's basically it. Did you have anything, Mike, or any comments about any of that? Uh, no, I mean, I just thought that was interesting about dried fruit. And <clears throat> I've often wondered about... Like we mentioned, just, you know, obviously are big fans of variety, you know, and portability, you know, things you can bring with and how different foods are prepared, we know will kind of alter the just different properties, right? From even stuff like, you know, old research on lycopene, you know, being higher bioavailability because you probably crush the cell walls and tomato paste and things of that nature too. So maybe there's a bunch of stuff like that going on with dried fruits where you're maybe we'll find different compounds that are in dried fruit that aren't in fresh fruit, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. When I think of weightlifters, right, of all varieties, just little W weightlifters, right, I think that we're not going to shy away from things that are higher calories if they're also good for us. Weight management in much less active, you know, you're just doing, uh, I don't know, like uh, middle-aged moms and dads, and they just want to watch their calories all the time. Maybe these aren't the best choice all the time because they can add up. I mean, big handfuls of almonds and things like that add up calorie-wise, but you know, lifters need those, so you might as well get them from a better source. It, again, this is more stuff that I think really just sort of erodes the if-it-fits-your-macro outlook. Cheese puffs are not going to do this. It's just not the same thing. Yeah, and that's the part people forget. If you're trying to increase your nutrient density with Pop-Tarts, well, good luck. <laughs> no, yeah, damn right, yeah. That reminds me of Tom Platts. You know, he used to talk about having a pot tart before he went to the gym. And uh, great, that's great. But yeah, you might as well take the opportunity to pack in some of these these cool, you know, phytochemicals and enhance your metabolism while you're at it. And a lot of times, I think, as we talked about, having those foods in addition to you know eating protein and vegetables and fruit and everything else, so you're not gonna you're already getting a lot of micronutrition, a lot of variety. It's just adding that on top of it where. The average American, sadly, is just using that to replace, you know, a banana or apple or something like that. It's not in addition to. Right. Yes, that's true. That's sort of Phil's approach, isn't it? Like he'll try yeah. to eat, eat something with lots of variety and balance and then just throw the, the, the brownies on top. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'll tell you what. Let's just go to break. When we come back, Mike and I are going to have a discussion. I've got half a dozen questions here. I want to pick his brain because uh, Mike, I think, is in this category <laughs> and, and myself as well. But we're going to talk about muscle nerds 
um, where they came from. They weren't always a thing. Uh, when I was growing up in the 80s, you didn't really have this sort of category, but I think between some of the online forums, and I was listening to the discussion uh, last week with uh, with Jim Jim McDonald and whatnot, and, you know, it just kind of struck a chord. So we'll come back and we'll talk about muscle nerds. Hey, listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what, uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, There's an enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. I Am Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, everyone, we're back. It's Mike and Lonnie, and I've got some questions for Dr. Nelson here uh, about muscle nerds, and we can just have an open discussion about it. And maybe as a listener, you can think about, does any of this apply to you, or you're just so not in this category, right? I mean, there is a spectrum, I think, between egghead and meathead. Uh, And there are certainly meathead-type lifters who they're not going to be turned on to iron radio at all. Like what, especially I think Mike and I, what we, what, what we offer, you know, is they're just going to be like, what, what the hell? How much you bench, bro? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I mean, you're an engineer, you're a PhD, obviously you're a man of science and yet you've gravitated toward things that I don't think society expects you to metal <laughs> and he- metal music and heavy lifting. And, uh, is this, is this a contradiction, or is that something that society just wants to be 
sort of pretend that all scientists are like a Stephen Hawking. You know, like your if your mind is brilliant, then your body must be, you know, mandatorily weak or something like that. Is it a contradiction? Do you think? I mean, I don't think it's a contradiction. I mean, <clears throat> to me, having those things together makes you know much more sense from you know even just performance of you know mind and body tons of studies on aerobic training with brain function and you know all the other myriad of studies we see on you know just muscle function and performance and everything else but i think it's just generally a stereotype in society and i'm sure that there are some people who live out that stereotype but i usually find they're the more the minority than what i guess the general population would expect Mm -hmm. i think it even goes back to I just finished reading uh, David Epstein's book called Range, where he's kind of arguing more for, you know, having deep knowledge in one area and then kind of expanding your horizons a little bit into other areas, right? So what are the overlap between, you know, disciplines? And I think being a hyper-specialist in just society is kind of viewed as a positive, and there are definitely roles for that, and they're definitely needed. But the assumption is that you can only do kind of that one thing, right? If you're really, really good in sports, then uh, you must not be very good at anything else, right? Yeah. And we kind of almost put, I think people who are very hyper-specialized almost kind of up on a, a pedestal, whether it's medicine and, you know, you become hyper-specialized. So now, you know, orthopedics are only doing, you know, one type of ACL replacement for knees. You know, not all of them. But, and there's definitely a time and a place for that. But it's very specific, right? If I need a ACL <clears throat> replaced, I'm going to try to find the best ACL surgeon I can find. And that's probably mostly what he's going to spend his or her life doing. Um, but if my knee kind of hurts, eh, I don't know if I want to go to that <laughs> go to that person. Um, I think society in general just still has the lure of being a hyper-specialist is something that is very lauded upon, but then kind of put in a box of that's kind of the assumption of that's the only thing that you're going to be good at, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, the dumb jock, the pencil neck nerd. Right. right. And yeah, and people do. They want to attach almost a single word to you, you know, like yeah. when I went back to school in some of the more formal nutrition stuff, it's amazing how like when I worked in dietetics departments, they're like, this is Lonnie. He's the exercise fizz guy. And when I yeah. work in, in, in like exercise science departments, they're like, this is Lonnie. He's the nutritionist. I'm like, yeah. I really stood. I paid a lot of money to do both of these things, you guys. <laughs> but, but, but I get it, right? They, people, they want to brand you in a very narrow way. Um, luckily, though, but let's get back to this idea of the muscle nerd because this is a hybrid. Yeah. And I agree with you. I mean, to me, it's self-actualization. Anybody who wants to be heroically strong or massive uh, why Why would you not also want to enhance your cognitive abilities? You know, and this extends into nootropics and all that sort of stuff. I mean, people talk about anabolic steroids for strength yeah. and size, but what about nootropics? I mean, what a fascinating concept that is. They're the essentially like cognitive steroids for your brain, if you will, even if they're not steroidal. But yeah, that sort of self-actualization thing. But now we're middle-aged, right? So when yes. you were young I, i'm guessing you didn't see many people in this this muscle nerd category this egghead meathead crossover 
where did they come from? Because I think you've got a lot of examples we can think of from what grew out of T Nation or, yeah. again, listening last week, even a little bit uh, from uh, the bodybuilding.com forums. Um, but you've got people like us and John Berardi and Lane Norton, and there's all these guys that I think fit this category. Where do you think... Where did we come from? What was the motivation? Were, were we always there and just not identified? I think it's <clears throat> kind of always been around. I mean, even if you go back, like I like reading a lot of the, I guess you consider now, you know, old time lifters, you know, but before like the 1950s, um, just because we think some of the new methods are new and they're not really new. And then plus, just from my own perspective, you know, Diana Ball was like 1952. So anything before that, you know, it, very, very unlikely that there was any use of, you know, exogenous compounds or whatever. And people want to use that. I don't really care. It's a personal choice. But for me to try to extract knowledge that I'm going to use, I find that at least before that, I know that external substances weren't part of the equation. And even back then, those guys were all considered to be, you know, pretty intelligent just from the, the training methods that they did, which... You know, now we look back and like, oh, yeah, they're doing that like 100, 200 years ago. It's not anything really that new. So I think it kind of grew as a, it's an outcropping of that. But back then, there wasn't as much formal degree, right? Depends on when you consider exercise physiology form. Most people would say A.V. Hill. That's the early 1900s, and that's mm -hmm. just the, the start of the discipline, mm -hmm. you know, and that was very much aerobic training. I mean, strength training wasn't really part of that. You know, all the early lifters were kind of laughed at by some of the scientists of, you know, all you weird people picking up your heavy dumbbells and stuff. And more of that was probably just because it was easier to study people on a treadmill than it was actually lifting with the equipment they had. But as technology gets better, you know, now we can see we can branch out and you can look at the development of the muscle biopsy, right, from Bergstrom and those guys in 1963, I believe. And that really changed a lot of it and I think started making things more muscle centric. And then fast forward to stuff like MRI, MRS, you know, non-invasive equipment to get ideas of, of what's going on. And I think another key part, too, was that you didn't have to necessarily even go into academics. Um, I remember following, you know, your stuff early on and all the guys at T Nation. I used to print them out and take my lunch break and, like, read all of them. I'm like, oh, this is this is so crazy. Like, they're super knowledgeable, like. And they actually lift, like they're applying like what they learned. Um, and John Brardy was the first guy I saw who didn't really go into academics, but did, you know, a very legit PhD, did all of his research and kind of went more in the, the public realm. And I was like, oh, you can do that? Like <laughs> until that point, that thought never really kind of entered my head per se. So I think especially with the Internet and just communication being much more open, I think people can now look around and find different role models of people who have done something a little bit different and have been uh, successful at it. So I don't think there's as many boundaries as there used to be, and there's more examples of what is actually possible, too. Yeah, the, the examples, I think, uh, are, are a big part, because then you're looking at a physical manifestation of somebody who's, right. who's done it. You know, so, yeah, because I think back in the day, uh, it was always like if you're an academic and you're locked away in the ivory tower, you're just not a muscle head. I mean, even in my yeah. career, I'm 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 just old enough to have felt that serious um, 
you know, um, conflict between those two sides. You know, academics roll their eyes at this cheesy bodybuilder kind of background thing. And then, but then the meatheads in the gym roll their eyes at the egghead stuff, you know, like you. Yeah. <laughs> so it, 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 it is this, um, even if it's not a contradiction, and I agree with you very much. I mean, obviously, you and I would not have done what we've done if we yeah. felt like these somehow harmed each other. Obviously, they inform each other. You know, I mean, knowledge is power. Applied knowledge is power. And the more I learned about nutrition, hell yeah, I'm going to try to use that to gain mass, you know? I mean, even when I was doing my PhD, I was floored that my advisor could really give two shits less about exercise performance. It took me four years to figure out why is he even studying, ex why is he exercise phys? That was his background. He, you know, Senator Mercostal and all the, yep. you know, guys who were in the field, the prominent people. And he's like, well, I just use exercise as a variable to push things around in the body. So he's using it as an outside stressor just to see what happens. He doesn't really care so much about the performance aspect of it. Mm -hmm. He's using it like another variable to see what happens to the body. I was like, well, that's weird. Like, why do you not care about performance? Um, and even most of the people in my department, we had a smaller department, so there was maybe five master's students and maybe you know, four-ish, two to four-ish PhD students in the lab I was in, which is one of many labs there. Um, and the running joke is when these you know, undergrad students would come in, they're like, hey, you know, we just did a Wingate test today in lab. Like, how do we use that in training? Like, what is that useful for? And the running joke was they'd all just send them to me because the other PhD students like, had no idea. Like even something as simple as, well, if you have an athlete who wants more speed and power in, you know, 20 to 30 second domain, this might be a good training method. That was like beyond them because they wow. yeah. were not, they never had to apply anything. They didn't work as a trainer. You know, one of them was looking at exercise and cancer. One was looking at bone health, you know, so they weren't really looking at performance per se. They were very much going to be the hardcore academic um, research area. And to me, that was always just weird. It's like, why do you not care about the performance of it? Um, so I always found that odd myself. I hear you. Uh, I remember, like, during my dissertation, I ran people downhill, and I fed them different lipids yeah. to, right, to try to modulate the inflammatory response. But there were people who they would almost toss me a little bit of respect if I said, I'm using exercise as a model to, in a way to ethically hurt people, <laughs> kind <Yeah>. of, right? <laughs> I'm not going to break their tibia. I'm not going to do some of these rodent models where they put turpentine under the animal's skin and watch them have this yep. massive acute phase response. So it's just a model. And they're like, oh, it's a model of stress, kind of to your point, right, with the advisors yeah. and stuff. And they can get their head around that. But my, my dirty secret was always that I wanted to apply some of this to myself, you know, like yeah. – if, if my dietary fat choice actually led to less cortisol production or less stress or inflammation or whatever, yeah, I'm interested in that on a personal level, and I don't think that has to be bad. I actually once proposed a book to a publisher, and um, two of the reviewers, they thought it was absolutely uh, bizarre to the point of unethical that I, I was approaching it from a personal enrichment point of view, like ec learning about exercise and nutrition to help yourself. And they actually thought that was unethical. And I'm like, I just I can't what? disagree with you more. Uh, almost yeah. along, along some weird line of ulterior motives or ergogenic age, you know, the people that are so freaking yeah. paranoid about this stuff. And I'm, and, but that was not the, the, even the focus of the book. It was training and nutrition 
Um, I don't know. And I'm to this day, I'm like, I just, I, let me back up. These reviewers were phys ed profs. Oh, and, sure. I, and I don't know if that's where that came from or they weren't as interested in the, in the physiology, but I'm like, I just can't disagree with you more. I'm withdrawing this. Uh, I don't want to talk to you anymore because we, we are at an absolute impasse here. You know, that if you think that because I have a personal interest in this and bringing yourself into science, in fact, there's some great Science Friday uh, sessions you can listen to about if you leave yourself out of a story, especially when you're trying to teach science, it makes it dry and dull. And this was not all about me personally, but I mean, think about Carl Sagan. You know, a lot of the yeah. stuff in the cosmos was a personal voyage, how he would wrestle with everything from uh, religion and how it conflicts with science or doesn't and all this stuff. And yeah. So anyway, it's, I, I don't see why it's it can't it can't be a huge motivator. I would argue most of our listeners are actually motivated uh, to learn more because they do want to be better in in the gym. And the the flip side is true too. You and I both. You see something like a phenomenon in nature or in the gym, and you're like, I want to go learn about that. Like, what's happening there? Because that was weird. Or how does that guy? How is he able to do that? Or that girl? And you want to learn about it, I guess. You know, it's it's just curiosity. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of, you know, if you, usually if you dig into how anyone ended up in some sort of specialty, especially I found this in more the fitness realm, it's usually them trying to solve their own problem. Mm -hmm. And the outcome of that may not be they're an elite lifter or they're at the highest end of the spectrum, but they probably had to figure out a whole bunch of stuff along the way that may be useful to you in your journey. And that is also almost a double-edged sword too, because they tend to view the world from that sort of lens also, mm -hmm. you know? So I know for myself, a lot of it was just, well, you know, how do I do this or solve that? Or, oh, eye issues. Oh, that's weird. Well, what about scar tissue? You know, and all the different things that you just end up looking into, which at the time I was like, Oh, this sucks. Like, why do I have to spend all this time trying to fix this screwy posture or this type of thing? And then a decade and a half, two decades later, you're like, wow, I would have never learned half of the stuff I learned now if I didn't have something that wasn't, quote unquote, working correctly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and people I know who are, you know, gut experts or other things like that, you know, a lot of times they're like, well, you know, I had gut issues when I was a kid or, you know, things of that nature. So it's, Especially when you're very young, I think it's easy to kind of look and go, ah, right? why can't I just, you know, look at the weights and add more muscle? But the things you learn along the, the journey because of that, I think, are very useful. And that also probably makes you quite different from other people because you've got kind of this personal, you know, drive that you're going to do more than most other people to try to get closer to whatever the quote-unquote answer is. Sure. Yeah. I mean, a lot of what I did in the gym with the weights, it was um, it actually opened up new worlds of science to me. I don't know if I would have sure. gone all the way through school. Let's face it. How many people get into physical therapy because they had a good experience with a physical therapist because of a personal injury, you know, or they become a cancer researcher because yeah. a family member had cancer? These yeah. are all motivators that I don't. Yeah, it's I'm sure this is part of the whole muscle nerd 
collection. I mean, yeah. you talk about like real life examples, but there's even there's even like artistic and fantasy and fictitious ones. Uh, I grew up like reading comic books and stuff like that. And those superheroes, now they're all over and people don't question the whole genre. But for the yeah. longest time, like, oh, comic books, that's total dork. You know, that's so yeah. nerdy. <laughs> or or metal music. That's a, aggressive stuff, but it's sort of often wrapped in fantasy and power and all of these sorts of things. And what do we do? We go into the gym, me, you, and Phil, all three of us. And yeah. you, you put on the metal and you kind of enter a different zone. And I, I think all these things sort of collectively uh, – and let me, let me uh, I just digress for a minute. Fortress used to talk about the perception of metalheads, and you and Rob are way deep into metal. Yeah. But, <laughs> but Rob would used to say there's, there's actually an awful lot of them that are almost in the – you could almost consider like a nerdy-type category. You know, they're, sure. a, a, they're a subculture. They, they're rejecting uh, certain things in gen pop. Like Gen Pop, Top 40 music is a joke, you know, and, and all that sort of stuff. But I think a lot of these things do sort of come into this, and they're, they've just become uh, less judged in a way. You know, like if you like comic book superheroes and that motivates you because you identify with one of them and you want to be like the Hulk or something, then no one's really going to roll their eyes as much because now it's fantasy and comic books and that sort of stuff is is such common knowledge, whereas before – uh, you know, Wolverine or Conan, people would say, you're odd, boy, you know. and But there is that aggressive side to all of this too, right? I mean, I think that's something where if someone's naturally intellectual, they read fantasy novels or, or comic book, graphic novels, something like that, then I think that feeds the fire too. Do you agree with that? Yeah, no, I would definitely agree. I mean, it kind of all goes back to just, you know, tribes in general, right? I mean, even from the origin of, you know, early punk to, to metal, those are always kind of considered the, you know, the outcasts. And even from, um, I guess you'd say notoriety standpoint, right? It's always like, oh, you know, that's like vocals sound like you gargled with, you know, Drano and razor blades. There's no <laughs> skill involved in that. And then you have, you know, certain vocalists who can do both, right? Who can you know, sing, you know, like Burton C. Bell, Fear Factory, especially the early stuff, where you can do the death metal, you know, kind of cookie monster thing, but yet can actually sing very clean, you know. And there's a newer band called Ginger, which is a female singer. I think they're from Ukraine, I believe. But very, very clean vocals, but she also does the very kind of cookie monster type thing. Especially from, you know, first a female, you're like, whoa, that's like you watch the video. You're like, that's crazy. That voice came out of that little girl. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, yeah. and you realize that there's a lot of, you know, skill involved in that, even though it doesn't appear to be that way on the surface. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like most things, right? You think at first you're like, ah, oh, there's probably not much to that. And then, you know, whatever people are into, you can go super far down the rabbit hole in just about anything now. Yeah, the I think that music and even and the visual arts, they just play a big role. I mean, think about the artistic yeah. side of bodybuilders. I always gravitated toward the Zane, Lee Labrada. Yeah. You know, I was just having a conversation the other day about how 
turned off I was, even at a young age, of some of these guys that were, they're almost, it's, they make it like a big time wrestling spectacle where they just randomly rip off most muscular poses or double biceps and walking from side to side of the stage. And as opposed to the choreographed guys, there was so much more depth. You know, if you had good legs, what poses show those off, you know, or uh, if you were short and you didn't want to be dominated, you do lunging poses, you know, and there was depth and there was music involved to the transitions, thoughts between the individual poses. There was choreography, right? I mean, yeah. it was it's it was more sophisticated than the the guys that were just I just take lots of juice and and pose. I I do what my trainer tells me, my quote unquote trainer, you know. Yeah. Uh, usually meaning you know drug connection, <laughs> yeah. but. I don't know, and it, there, there does seem to be an, an element of that. And I'm sure there's, well, of course, I mean, in bodybuilding and powerlifting, there are guys that are like that. They, they don't really care about the science. They just, they don't want to hear about it. Like, you know, just, just the bros. I mean, and in a lot of ways, talking about bro science and gym bros and all this sort of stuff, they almost get mocked a bit now, you know. But make no mistake, over the years of Iron Radio, there's been the odd comment where, like, I can't. I can't listen to those dorks, and you know, and it's like, well, then, then don't. Like, we don't want you here, you know, because yeah. our brand is egghead meathead, and if if you can't straddle those two, if you don't realize knowledge is empowering, then you know, just go back to doing your mindless five sets of eight reps in the bench press for the rest of your life, you know. Yeah, <laughs> but I think the overlaps to me is, and you're very similar. That's where all the interesting stuff is. Like, I feel like I've spent my whole life just, you know, can you get good enough in one area and then overlap it with another area? You know, so when I did a master's in engineering and then I worked in the med tech space for quite a while, I'd done a lot of physiology classes, started going back to school again. And for one project, I initially was the engineer on the project. For another project, I was more the um, go-between between the... Um, technical department and the marketing department because I could basically translate what all these you know, electrophysiologists were saying to marketing speak, but I could talk to the engineers. Okay. And then for one project, this is all within a two-year period, I was actually the physiology person <laughs> on the project. And the lead engineer is like drawing this equation on the board one day. It's like, oh, this isn't working. I looked at him like, oh, we have the wrong variable for stress in the bottom part of the equation. And he looks at me and he's like, how did you know that? I'm like, well, I did a master's in mechanical engineering. <laughs> right. He's like, right. Well, I thought you were just a physiology person because that was where you were kind of pigeonholed on that project. Yep. Um, but I think all the overlap is the most interesting between like um, even bodybuilding, like you said, with the the work you do in the gym, but then can you create sort of art when you're doing as a posing routine? Um, even other upcoming stuff like, you know, CrossFit. I've worked with some obstacle course racers now, too. And it's like, oh, boy, how do you get a pretty high aerobic engine but also be pretty strong? You're not going to win marathons. You're probably not going to win powerlifting events. But how can you do, like, super high outputs of work over and over, right, by kind of riding two conflicting things, aerobic and anaerobic performance? So. I think all those interfaces, to me, that's where all the, the hard problems that are left to be solved are going to be at, too. And I just get worried, especially in academia, where everyone lives in their own silo, and you're just very encouraged to keep publishing smaller and smaller details in one area, which is definitely needed. Mm -hmm. 
but it doesn't appear like there's anyone trying to bridge any of those areas together. And that's sort of left to the people who have to do it in application. But yet from academia, it's like, oh, those are all just those weird practitioners. They don't know anything about the research. Right. So it's this kind of us versus them mentality at times. Yeah. I remember being at an NIH workshop um, in Chicago years ago. And I think I've mentioned this even on air before, but hundreds of dietitians and nutrition scientists in the room and they're the session was on cachectic disorders and inflammation and that sort of thing. And literally, like, they were at an impasse collectively. They're like, what can we do? What <laughs> stimulus? You can't just feed more low-quality proteins if somebody, for example, if they have renal cachexia, you know, they're wasting yeah. away. You can't flood them with all kinds of protein with no no thought to its quality. And uh, what about anabolic hormones? Oh, we can't do that. And, I mean... I'm drawing from this bodybuilding background, like abusing hormones and lifting weights is what those guys do, you yeah. know? And, and I, so I raised my hand. I'm like, progressive resistance training, <laughs> you know? And they're like all kind of talking to their kids. Oh, hmm. It, could that be? Is it that simple? Or, you know, is like they didn't even think about that. That's a real stimulus and people can manipulate that stimulus to really extreme degrees, you know? Oh, yeah. Like Both it, low and high. Yeah, with super, you know, uh, body mass indexes well over 30, largely muscle mass and, and you know, stuff like that. And yeah, and th because they can't, they can't straddle these two things. Or a lot of the stuff that I've seen in the gym, I would bring into the classroom. You know, like if we just did a, an advanced lab looking at different markers of um, eccentric trauma and DOMS and stuff. And you've got to have some idea of how many reps that's going to take of negatives to induce the soreness and the inflammation and, you know, then you draw on your background. You're like, well, I know that I better do at least 25 to 40 reps there, yeah. you know. Um, and part of that's reading the literature, but it's also the, the one million times you and I have been rocked muscularly because we've done something to ourselves. Um, I guess one thing that we did not address just quickly here, we could kind of wrap up with this, but what percentage do you think of bodybuilders and powerlifters sort of fall into that, people that are equally interested in cognitive improvement and uh are muscle nerds 10 percent of the picture and meatheads 90 percent uh you know what's what's the breakdown do you think oh man i know it's hard <laughs> Ooh. i mean if i had to just guess i would say 30 70 mm -hmm. but my initial guess would have been super high but then i'm like oh but like all the people I hang out with are in <laughs> in the same category, oh, I am, you know, yeah. for the most part. Yeah. I mean, especially in this area. Mm -hmm. um, and even like my buddy Luke, who runs a company whose name literally is Muscle Nerds in Australia. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like most of the people I hang out with are in that area. But I would say 30, 70. I don't know. What would you say? Yeah, I, I agree with you because we have like almost a daily confirmation bias by talking yeah. to oh, uh, totally. this 100%. echo chamber of other muscle <laughs> nerds, right? Um, but honestly, I think that's one of the reasons that over the years, Iron Radio has been relatively highly uh, rated because people are like, I identify with that. Like, I like to learn what's going on in the science news. And yes, I'm going to see if I can't apply that to myself. You know, it's a, it's sort of an audio version of what TMAG used to be in some ways, where we talk about some studies and then we have a topic and, you know, how can we apply this to ourselves and to the listeners and and, and do it with evidence-based instead of just bullshit, you know. But, yes, it's funny that you said that because my 
when I first asked myself this question, I said probably 30%. I I would bet up to one out of three people have at least some level of nerd in them. But I don't know. Like like you said, it that's hard to say, isn't it? Because when when I was backstage uh, at competitions, I don't think it was one out of three. Uh, I mean, maybe one out yeah. of three mildly interested uh, in recent studies or or that kind of thing. But full on like self identification as sort of a warrior nerd or something like that. Mm, it's it, it's not thirty percent, probably at least when I'm backstage. You know. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's, I think it's gotten a little less niche over the years. I mean, I remember reading all the, you know your original articles and you know Chad Waterbury and John Berardi and all those guys, and I love that it was all you know more on the research side base, but it was also had a very practical application to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I think everything's kind of drifted a little bit towards you know more the middle. A little bit more on the practical side with less of the science. But then you've got guys, you know, like, you know, Greg Knuckles and what he's doing that's very science-based and, you know, Dr. Brett Contreras and a whole bunch of other people that are doing very, let's say, very heavily based science stuff, but still also coach people and lift and, you know, Lane Norton and guys like that. So on the other hand, I think maybe it's just growing more in popularity, just uh, maybe not quite as niche as it used to be but again then i go to the grocery store or go to some other thing where you're in public or you're on a plane and the the questions you get from people you're just like whoa (laughs) yeah yeah you're like i do live in my own world (laughs) right yeah it's true it's true Uh, yeah i think in general i think nerd culture is almost a a a cool thing now you know like comic con and all these kinds of things people online sort of really trying to even if they're not really nerdy they're co-opting yeah. it and pretending they are almost like it's some yeah. kind of it's actually a cool thing and boy that was not the case in the 80s you no. know <laughs> uh, sort of thing but um yeah i just thought it'd be a fun discussion of what motivates people and again listeners uh, let mike and i know and yeah, phil too sure. i mean phil we're talking about visual arts phil's got a freaking master's in fine arts yeah, right in fine arts right yeah so um, I, I'm sure, and he likes very particular kinds of music and all that as motivators. So, you know, you're going to get different degrees of uh, of sort of that muscle nerd from all three of us, actually, you know, so. Yeah. And my last comment, too, is I think that the application is actually the art. So initially when I started, I was much more of the extremely hardcore science, and obviously I still love all that stuff. But I realized that, I'm probably not going to live long enough to see science answer all the questions that I want answered. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that the application is almost the art of that whole process, right? Of taking a study that maybe it was done on mice or maybe it's a limited human subject study and knowing what you know about physiology from a background, can you speculate into what the action may be? And then we all have the ability to run our own kind of N of one and see, you know, does that work? Does it not work? You know, and you're never going to get a super clear answer from that because you can't put your entire life on hold to change one variable, you know. But I think that's also part of the process that makes it fun, you know, because life is kind of an experiment. I think that keeps you kind of engaged in the whole entire process, too. And I think people sometimes forget that that's if that's what makes it fun, you're probably going to do more of it and keep continuing down that path also. 
it's it's very much like evidence-based medicine you know i remember yeah. showing a bunch of studies to a, a guy you know who became my friend over the years he's an endocrinologist and and he's like that is fascinating stuff he said let me my challenge is to and to your point look like the art or you know the phrase there's a snip for that right like yeah. individual differences <laughs> it makes the application of this not always a, a guarantee so how well, do you tweak right. this for an individual or even yourself you know, and I, I think that's where you, you almost have to have a little bit of science nerd in you. Um, but then, yeah, like you said, where is the art in applying this to a very um, unique uh, physiology or, you know, unique person? So, Yeah. Fun stuff. All right. Well, that's it. That's what happens when Phil's away, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we will uh, We'll just catch up with you next week then. See you. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store. Uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists... The bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding. Um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.